Let's read tonight, Psalms 14. I'll read verse 1, you verse 2, me 3, you 4, and we'll read this psalm together, all right? Psalms chapter 14. Ready? The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable, uh, abominable works. There is none that doeth good. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. They are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge who eat up my people as they eat bread and call not upon the Lord? There were they in great fear, for God is in the generation of the righteous. You have shamed the counsel of the, of the poor, because the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that the salvation of Israel were come out of Zion. When the Lord bringeth back the captivity of his people, Jacob shall rejoice, and Israel shall be glad." Psalms chapter number 14. Now, what in the world does all of that have? Seven verses in this psalm, and I counted the words, and, uh, which means there are 149 words in this psalm. So it's a relatively very short psalm. And read through it in just a matter of a, a minute or so, minute and a half, read the entire psalm. But I want to tell you the old saying is that dynamite comes in small packages. And this is a small psalm, but it certainly is packed with a punch. And so what I want to do tonight is just break these verses apart quickly and to make some comments uh, as to the relevance of what all this has to do with us in our day. So let's do this. I, I want to use three words tonight to see if we can understand this psalm. And the first word that I want to use tonight in Psalms 14 is I want to say there is a word in this psalm, number one, there's a word about impiety. Now, I hate to do this. I hate to use words that we don't use in our everyday language, but I doubt anybody in here went out today and probably used that word impiety. You probably didn't say, you know that old guy over there, he's an impietous old pomp, isn't he? I mean, we, we don't really use that word a lot, but what the word impiety means, if you were to take the I am off of that and just use the phrase piety, that's a Bible word. In 1 Timothy 5, 4, Paul admonished is Timothy to learn to show piety first at home. So the word piety means great, great respect or reverence for God. Uh, it means to show the right kind of religion in the home. Show your respect and love for God. That's the, what the word piety means. If you ever say somebody, boy, he's a pious person, isn't he? You're saying, boy, that guy there shows a lot of respect and reverence toward God. But when you put the prefix on it, I am, it means to lack that. So in other words, the word impiety simply means godlessness or irreverence. And really that's what, how this psalm begins. Psalm 14, verse 1, verse 2, and verse number 3 really talks about the subject of impiety. Those who lack reverence or respect for God. Now right now, if you think, you can think of somebody that you know that would certainly be a person who is a impietous person. They are a person who has little respect or little... Rest. By the way, you probably more know them more than just one person like that. And that's the way this psalm starts off. Look at verse 1. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. You know our Bible consists of 66 books... 1,189 chapters, 31,100. 
142 verses and 788,000 plus words make up the King James Bible. But what interests me is God devotes out of that 788,000 plus words, God only devotes 11 words to the atheist. And there they are in verse number 1 of chapter 14. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. You know, it's almost interesting to me that God would even, even take up any of his time to talk about a person that don't believe in him. Don't you find that a little bit humorous that God would just stop and, and say, hey, let me say something about the people that don't even believe in me. And God says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. I read this week the story of this little boy who was being raised by parents who denied the existence of God. And one night as they were sitting around the supper table, the little boy looks over at his daddy and he says, he said, Dad, do you think God knows that we don't believe in him? And that's the way a lot of people are in this world. And God says that the person who says that there's no God is a fool. He is a fool. Now, I don't want to insult anybody in this room tonight. But I did look up some synonyms for the word fool. And here are some synonyms in the thesaurus for the word fool. What about this word? Idiot. What about this word? moron. What about this word? I couldn't even believe this is a word. My sister used to call me this all the time. Blockhead. <laughs> Dimwit. Ignoramus. Numbskull. So we really could read verse 1 and say the numbskull, the idiot, the blockhead, the, uh, uh, the moron has said in his heart there is no God. But have you ever thought about this? A lot of those people whom God says is a fool are people that have PhDs on the wall. They're very intelligent people. They're highly educated people. And yet, there are people who say that there is no God. Ladies and gentlemen, it is not amazing to think that a person can read a book and know that there is an author. They can look at a portrait and know that there is a painter. They can look at their watch and know that there is a maker. They can live in their house and know that there is a builder. And yet, they can look at creation and deny there is a creator. God said, fool. The fool hath said in his heart. You ever thought about this in the Bible? God nowhere in the Bible offers up any kind of evidences that he really exists. God never spends time in the Bible saying, all right, you wonder if I'm real or not. Let me give you some evidence that I am real. God nowhere in the Bible offers up evidences that he really exists. God simply steps out from behind the curtain of eternity, sticks out his hand in Genesis 1-1 and says... In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God declared that he was. And if you don't believe that, friend, that's on you. God said, I want you to know that I am here. And the Bible said that God says of the fool, the person who says there is no God is a fool. But I want you to look at me. Because there is more than one kind of atheist. You see, there is the intellectual atheist that says that there is no God. But there is also a practical atheist who says that there is a God, but then they live their life as if that God that they says is doesn't exist. They are a practical atheist. Can I tell you something? I really don't know which one's worse. 
the one who philosophically says there's no God or the person who says, oh yeah, there is a God, but then they go out and live their life as if there is no God. Which one's worse? But I want you to notice in Psalms 14 in verse number 1, I want you to notice how this reads. Look again at that first sentence, 11 words. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Now, if you'll notice those two words, there is. Now, in my Schofield Bible, I'm sure it's in your Bible as well, if you have a King James Bible, those words are in italics. And any time you come across words in our King, James, our King James Bible that is in italics, that is letting us know that the, that the uh, translators supplied those words to this text to try to clarify what this verse is saying. They were so honest they wanted us to know. That's why, that's why I trust the King James Bible. They were so honest that they wanted us to know these words may not have been in those manuscripts. We added these words, but to, but to, to show you that we added them, we're going to place them in italics. So in reality, what I'm driving at, look again at verse number 1, the first sentence. We could really read this verse like this. The fool has said in his heart, No God. No God. You see, we come to understand uh, the fool, the man who says that there is a God and then lives like there isn't a God, God said that man is a fool. Now, I'll tell you, our, our world is full of people like that today, people who will tell you that there is a God, but they want nothing to do with the God that they say they believe in. You know, some people like that come to church today. They'll come on Sunday morning, they'll give God lip, lip service, they'll walk right out them same doors, go out here in the world, and Monday through Saturday live just like God doesn't exist. Our churches are full of people just like this. People who say there is a God, but then they go out and live as if there were no God. They say they believe the Bible to be the Word of God, but they never read it. They say that prayer is communication with God, but then they never pray. They say that Sunday is God's day, and the Lord is, and, 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 and the, the church is God's house, but then they never attend. You know what they are? I'll tell you what they are. They are a practical atheist. They say that they believe in God, and yet they live as if there is no God. The fool has said in his heart, however you want to read it, there is no God, and the fool has said in his heart, no God. No God for me. Can I say that this is all not a mental manner, a mental matter. It is not a matter of the mind. It's a moral matter. And I say that according to verse 1. Where does he say all this at? In his what? Hey, hey, look right here. Now we found another heart. In addition to a soft heart and a turned heart and a kept heart and a new heart and a, what I preached on last week, a stolen heart, now we find there's a foolish heart. This whole matter, this whole matter of saying that there is no God is not a mental matter, it's a moral matter. They've got a heart problem. Every person in this world that denies the existence of God, they have got a heart problem. So we learn a little bit in that first phrase of Psalm 14, a little bit about the word impiety. A person that lacks respect or reverence 
for God. Now let's move on. Not only do we find in this psalm a word about impiety, but next we learn there is a word about depravity. Depravity. Now if you'll begin there in verse number one, again it says they are corrupt, they have done abominable works, there is none that doeth good. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek after God. They are all going aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Have you ever heard a preacher talk about the total depravity of, of humanity? You ever heard a preacher stand up before and say, all of humanity is totally depraved? What does that mean? When we say that mankind is totally depraved or uh, total depravity, what does that mean? Well, let me tell you what that means. Total depravity does not mean that every man is a murderer or a pervert. doesn't mean that at all. It it doesn't mean that, that, that people are as bad as they can be because we know that there are a lot of sinners who are morally good people. In fact, can I tell you this? One of the reasons a lot of people won't come to God is because morally speaking, they try to live good lives. And they do. You know, it is sad, but it's true that some people outside the church live better lives than some people inside the church. Can I have an amen? Uh, It is sad, but it's so true that there are some lost people who live better lives than than the saved people do. They are morally good people. So when we say that people are totally depraved or or, or mankind is is in total depravity, what does that mean? Well, that simply means this. It simply means that man at his best is tainted by his sin. Man at best is tainted by... By sin. Let me, let me use another word. He is polluted by sin. He is infected by sin. He is impaired by sin. Or let me say it like this. Look up on the screens. I, I, it, the best of men are just men at best. Now what does that mean? That simply means this. When a preacher stands up and preaches about the total depravity of humanity and we say that all men are totally depraved, what we simply mean is all men have been affected and infected by their sin. I think all of us in here come to understand that when God created us, that God created us in his image. Can I have an amen? The Bible says that back in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27. Male and female created he them in his image. Now if I understand that right, that simply means that God made us like him. Now that doesn't mean that we are him. Man will never be God. I don't care what the Mormons say. Man will never be God. God did not create us as gods, but he created us in his image like him. Now, there's a couple of ways that that's true. Number one, God is an eternal God. He never had a beginning. He'll never have an ending. When God created us, he created us as eternal beings. The Bible said in Genesis 2 and verse number 7 that the Lord God breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life and he became a living soul, an eternal soul. There was a time when you were not, but now that you are, there will never be a time when you will not be. Now, that is a mouthful. There was a time prior to December the 19th, 1962, if you want to write that down, give me something for my birthday this year. But prior to December 19th, 1962, I was not. But on that day, I can't remember the time, but on that day I was born in the hospital in Mount Airy, North Carolina. And from that day, from now on, there will never be a time when I will not be. 
Oh, I know my body's going to wear out some of these days. I know my heart's going to cease to beat and my lungs will, to, uh, they will cease to contract and expand. I know, I know that uh, my feet only have... I know, bodily speaking, one of these days, I'm going to check out. But I have an eternal part of me that's going to live on forever because when God created me, he created me just like him. He is an eternal God. We are eternal beings. There's a part of us that will never die. That's your soul. Your soul's going to live forever. But it's also true in the sense that God is a trinity. There's Father and Son and Holy Ghost. We read back in the book of Genesis again that God keeps saying over and over in that first chapter, let us make man in our own image. Let us do this. Uh, who's the us? It's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now look at me. We don't worship three gods. We worship one God manifested in three ways. So God is what we call a triune God. He's a trinity. Guess what? When God created you and me, he created us as triune beings. I have a body, I have a soul, and I have a spirit. I'm a trinity. There's three of me standing right here. You say, preacher, one of you is enough. I get it. But can I tell you this? In this one person... There are three compartments. And because I have been totally depraved, because that I am totally, uh, I am in total depravity, what that means is all three of my compartments have been affected by sin. My spirit before I got saved was affected by sin. I didn't have a desire. My spiritual antennae was broken before I got saved. Yours would too. That's why it was so hard to get you to come to church. I didn't enjoy the kind of music they had in church. I didn't enjoy being yelled and preached at and spat upon by some preacher somewhere. You know why? Spiritually, I had been affected by my sin. My spirit, my soul. The soul is the seat of my emotions. Oh, I want to tell you something, friend. My soul had been affected by sin. I'm telling you, it was so easy for me to hate uh, before I got saved. I, man, I could, I could hate people, not bat a, 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 a wink of an eye about it. How about you? You're probably the same way. But when God saved you, God changed your soul, your emotions. And then my body was affected by sin. I like to think of it like this. The day that Adam sinned, Listen to me. In his spirit, he died immediately. In his soul, he died progressively. And in his body, he died ultimately because God said in the day that you eat thereof, you're going to die. And he did die. You say, preacher, how you get that? He lived to be over 900 years old. How did he die the day that he did it? A thousand years in God's sight is as, and one day is a, yeah. Spiritually, he died immediately. In his soul, he died progressively, but in his body, he died ultimately. He was totally depraved. He was affected in all three areas of his body. Think of it like this. Our hands are dirtied by the deeds of our sin. Our minds are dirtied because of the deliberations of our sin. Our hearts are dirty because of the desires of our sin. God said the whole outfit. God said there in verse number one, uh, verse number two, uh, he went looking from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand any that sought after God. That's his exploration. God looked down upon the whole of humanity and God was looking for just one that was looking for him. God was looking for somebody that was seeking after him. His exploration, but here's his calculations. Look at verse 3. They are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Look at me. That's why we need a Savior. 
we've been totally depraved. Every last one of us. Uh, there is not a one of us that do good and sin not. No, not one. It almost reads, if you'll get there to verse number four, it almost reads like God said, I went looking now. I went down on the whole of humanity and I was searching for just one down there that was seeking after me. I was searching for just one down there that wanted the knowledge of me. And God said, I'd say the whole outfit's gone crazy. I mean, the whole crowd, there ain't nobody down there looking after me. I'll tell you, before you got saved, you was no more looking for God than a thief was looking for a police officer. Not a one. We wasn't searching for God, but aren't you glad he come looking for us? Amen. What is it old Squire Parsons used to sing? When I could not come to where he was, he came to me. We were totally depraved. All three areas of our body were affected by our sin. And God said, there ain't no one of them down there that's right. There's not a one down there that's searching and looking for me. Not a one. That's why we need a Savior. And then if you come to verse number 4 of this text, it almost seems like God is astounded by his own findings. Look what he said there in verse number 4. Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge? He said, don't they understand? I mean, can't they comprehend where they're headed with Without me, can't they comprehend what life is without me and what life could be with me? He is astounded by our ignorance. How many of you will confess before you got saved you was ignorant? I was. I was headed to hell, didn't even care. On a fast track to hell. Had my whole life planned out what I wanted to do. And it didn't include God. But I'm so thankful he stepped into my life. I'm so thankful through an old-fashioned preacher, God confronted me about my sin. And he didn't leave me alone. He didn't just confront me and walk away from me. But he kept on confronting me. Call it what you want to. I call it conviction. God kept dealing with me and dealing with me till I finally got saved by the grace of God. And that's your story as well. He's astounded by our ignorance. Have, have those people down there, have they no knowledge? And then look at this. He is astounded by our indifference. Notice that last phrase. And call not upon the Lord. Don't they understand where they're headed without me? Don't they understand how much trouble they're in? I am persuaded to believe if you can ever get a man lost, you can get him saved. Can I have an amen? The choir used to sing that old song, I'm so glad I got lost so that I could be saved. If you could get a man to understand how lost he is in the sight of God and what's waiting for him at the end of a life without God, but he can become a candidate for salvation. He can become a candidate for those who will call upon God. But God said, man, I'm just, I'm amazed that they're so ignorant. I'm amazed that they're so indifferent that they won't even call upon me. Isn't that amazing? That's what we were before we got saved. So there's a word about our impiety. There's a word about our depravity. But next, look in this psalm. There is a word about sovereignty. Sovereignty. Now, what does that mean? When we say that God is a sovereign God, I'm not scared of that word. I ain't scared. I don't care. I ain't scared. I'm not afraid of that. I'm not afraid of that word, total, those words, total depravity. I know the Calvinists have their view of total depravity, but I, I take the Scripture's point of view on total depravity. And when it comes to the sovereignty of God, I got no problem with the sovereignty of God. That simply means uh, some synonyms that God is preeminent. That simply means that God is supreme. 
You know, we talk about in our day a sovereign nation, a nation that exists on its own. A sovereign nation, they're a sovereign nation. They have borders, uh, they have uh, uh, lines drawn, and they exist. They are, they, uh, they are a sovereign nation. They exist alone. They exist on. Can I tell you, our God is a sovereign God. God don't need us. Can I have an amen? I'm sure glad he chooses to love us and chooses to use us, but he don't need us. He's doing fine before I got here, and he'll be doing fine after I'm gone. Don't say amen right there. But he will be, and he'll be doing fine when you're gone as well. God exists alone. He's supreme. He is preeminent. And, buddy, I'll tell you what. Here's David. He begins to look around at all this, all this impiety, those crowd running around saying, there's no God. There's no God for me. The fool has said in his heart. He looks at all this depraved crowd. They're living in depravity. They're, they don't understand. They're all gone aside. They're all together become filthy. By the way, verse 3 don't kind of indicate to me that there's a little spark in all, kind, all of mankind. And if you'll just fan it, he'll become a good person. Y'all remember that, that, that stuff that was floating around back in the 1970s? You know, they said, oh, man, all of mankind has a little spark of goodness. And all you got to do is fan the flames, and that goodness will grow. Oh, that's not what verse 3 says. Can I have an amen? Look at verse 3. They're all going to side. They are all together become filthy. By the way, when that word all, that means from the White House to the poor house to those with no house. Every last one of us. Then he went on to say there in verse 3, there is none that doeth good. Read those last three words with me. No, not. Ain't no one of us doing good. Not a one of us. That's why we need a Savior. That's where Jesus entered the picture, the depravity, and then the sovereignty of man. David concludes this psalm by simply talking about how great God is. And I want you to look at this, if you will, speaking about the sovereignty of God. Begin there in verse number 5, verse 6 and verse 7. Here's what we read. They, there were they in great fear. For God is in the generation of the righteous. You have shamed the counsel of the poor because the Lord is his refuge. Can I stop one more time and say there in verse 6, we better be careful how we treat poor people. We better be careful how we treat poor people. Blessed is he that considereth the poor. The Lord shall deliver him in the time of trouble. Look at verse 7. Oh, that the salvation of Israel will come out of Zion. When the Lord bringeth back the captivity of his people, Jacob shall rejoice, and Israel shall be glad. A word about sovereignty. I want you to notice in verse 5, notice number 1, their fear. They may not fear God now. They may be impious uh, people. They may say there is no God. But David looked, forward to a, uh, looked ahead to a time when he said they were there. There were they in great fear. Speaking of those who have no regard or reverence for God whatsoever, they may blaspheme and curse God. They may deny his existence. But one day there's going to come a day when they're going to be in great fear. They're going to stand doomed at the great white throne judgment. I think about stories that I've heard about those atheist people, uh, wicked atheist people, and on their deathbed, how they begin to cry out. i got a book in my office, uh, and it's called The Death of Saints and Sinners. And in that sinner section, 
and it talks about those old atheists like Voltaire. And when he, when he was on his deathbed, he was wringing his hair and, and, and wouldn't be still, wouldn't, wouldn't rest. And he had no peace and he kept saying, forsaken of God, there they were in great fear. I'm going to tell you something, friend. They may not fear God in this walk of life, but where they're headed someday, there's going to be a fear of God. Yes, sir, there were they in great fear. Notice this, not only their fear, but notice the faithful. Look at verse number five. For God is in the generation. And that word generation simply means this. He is in the company. Or maybe I could say it like this, the congregation of the righteous. They're in fear. Where are we at? Boy, we're with God. God's in us. Can I have an amen? You know something that's really easy for lost people to find God if they want to. It's really easy, uh, it's really easy for anybody that, 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 that wants to know more about God to find God. You know why? Because he is in the congregation of the righteous. If they want to learn more about God, all they got to do is come over here to Woodland. Can I have an amen? The Lord's in the congregation, the generation of the righteous. I can prove it to you. You say, preacher, I don't see God floating around in here. No, he's here. He's here. He's here Sunday night, wasn't he? He's here Sunday night. He's here even on Wednesday night. I know he'll be here this coming Sunday. You say, it's Father's Day. I know, and I know we honor our Father, but he's going to be here. He'll be back on Sunday night and next Wednesday night and all next week. He'll be here. You know why I know that? Because here's what the Bible said about it. Matthew 18, 20, For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Man, if a lost man wants to know more about God, I mean, he don't have to go to some liberal university and be taught by some God-denying professor. All he's got to do is, that's a little old short Baptist preacher over here, load his wagon if he'll come in here. There's teachers all over this building on Sunday morning. That'll be glad. They'll be glad to teach that old boy about God. If you want to find God, I'll tell you where you find him. He's in the congregation. He's in the generation of the righteous. Boy, I'm glad, that, I'm glad I come to church one day and met God. There's the fearful. There's the faithful. But then notice as he concludes this psalm there in verse 6 and verse 7, he starts talking about salvation. Look at verse 6. You have shamed the counsel of the poor because the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that the salvation of Israel were come out of Zion. When the Lord bringeth back the captivity of his people, Jacob shall rejoice and Israel shall be glad. Aren't you glad God has given us something called salvation? And salvation takes care of what sin has unraveled in our life. What sin has contaminated and tainted and, uh, and what sin has, what some of those other words, infected and impaired. Uh, I'm glad that salvation can fix every bit of that if a man and when a man comes to God. Well, I'm going to be honest with you. Psalms 14 is a, it's a difficult psalm. I searched and searched and searched trying to find why in the world David penned these words. And all I could come up with, everybody kept saying, we have no idea why he wrote these words. But I know one thing. He gave us a word about impiety and a word about depravity and a word about sovereignty. I'm glad I know God. I'm glad he knows me. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father.